Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Let's dive straight in to part two of my conversation with John McAvoy. I'm sweating listening to you recall this story and also before you know when you mentioned the part where you said okay I've come out and I've gone to Spain and I'm with my friend and again as you tell it it does sound like you can imagine for a young person who you know maybe friends who are you know working in a nine-to-five job that they hate and you know they haven't got a lot of money and you're thinking I'm sitting on the beach I'm living the high life you know you can understand why it sounds again glamorized it sounds I don't know, aspirational to some people hearing that you're thinking you can you can see why, you know, it would be appealing. But then I think that part that was missing for me, as I mentioned before, was the fear. You know, I was just like, where's the fear? Because, you know, when you said then, OK, I'd been to prison before. So this time I knew what to expect. And then I suppose, yeah, that realization. So when they when they handcuffed you this time, I don't know, you know, before you said you you're laughing, you feel arrogant, you feel cocky. What? did it feel like this time knowing that you were going back there and actually I know that you know it's a lot different this time right in terms of the sentence in terms of how long you were going to be in prison yeah so when when they arrested me one of the police officers that arrested me the first time got on the arrest squad to arrest me the second time because he felt it was unfinished business and when I was in the back of the unmarked police car I remember straight off the bat like I was I was thinking how am I going to get out of this and I was thinking if I pretend I got concussion from like the car crash and then getting arrested, they're gonna have to take me to hospital if I pretend I've got a head injury. And if they take me there, there might be a chink of light, an opportunity to get out. When I was in that car, someone got into the driver's seat and he looked round and I was looking down at the floor pretending I was concussed. And he kept saying my name, John, John, John. And I looked up and instantly I recognized his face from when I was younger and he arrested me the first time. And he looked at me with a big smile on his face and he said, you haven't learned your lesson, have you? And he went, you're going to go back to prison for a lot, lot longer this time. And, oh, wow. I just remembered, I just sunk in that chair. And then they all got in the car after about half hour to transport me to the police station. And when we were driving in this armed convoy, the police officer that arrested me the first time, who got in the arrest squad the second time to, to arrest me, he went to me, John, he went, I want you to look out the window. And I did. <laughs> and there were people going shopping and it was a sunny morning in September and I would have done anything to swap places with them. And he said to me, you will not be seeing this for a long, long time. And honestly, like I would have genuinely done anything to swap places with them. They took me to the police station. Um, they held me there. And again, like you pretend I pretend I had concussion. And then everything triggered back off again. And I was back into that mindset, like watching name, no comment. Um, they put me in the police interview. I wouldn't acknowledge my name, my date of birth, my address. Um, I was just literally defiant, wouldn't answer anything. I was as difficult as I could be. Um, and, 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 I, and I went back into that, my, that process again of what I did the first time. And they held me there for three days. They, I was in something called Incommunicado where I wasn't allowed to talk to anyone on the phone because they were raiding properties and they were they, they there was other suspects they wanted to arrest. And then they let me make my one phone call um, and they said, who do you want to phone? And I said, my mum. And honestly, it was <laughs> like when I, I rang my mum up and they, they'd been around my mum's house, they dug up her garden. Um, they, yeah, they just ripped her house apart. They, they, they thought, yeah, because it was the only address they had for me in the UK. So they thought mm. I was living there. Um, and then when they found my Spanish phone and stuff, they obviously knew I wasn't living in the UK, I was in Spain. But they went around and they'd done what they'd done to my mum's house. And I said to my mum, you're right. And the first words out of her mouth was, you promised me you wouldn't go back. And it killed me. It killed me. Of all the situation, of everything I'd just been through, it was my mum saying that to me because I promised my mum I would never go back to prison again when I got released. And, and I said, don't worry, mum, like, I'll be all right. Like She was like, and, and it's my mum. Like My mum went, I love you. I'm not going to give up on you. Um, and I remember getting off the phone. I just felt like I let her down so badly. And and, I, and that was the only thing that got me. It was the only thing that got me. It was mad. I remember like I felt my throat going when she said it. And they put me back in that cell. And um, and then I was, the next morning, I was waiting to get transferred to court. And I knew I was going to get remanded in custody. And then when I was, um, 
when I was taken out to, to get transported, they let me have a shower and they put me in the reception area of the police station and I could hear like these industrial fans and then like, all these radios were, were, were crackling and they were said that you can move the prisoner. And it was all the police officers that arrested me to take me to court, which is very unusual because normally you get taken by like special like staff to take you to like courts. Once you've been like arrested, it's not police officers, like undercover police officers from like serious and organized crime agency. Um, and I heard all these massive industrial fans, well, what I thought was fans. And then when they handcuffed me and took me out into the car park at the back of this police station, there was a helicopter above the police station. There was armed police everywhere. There was Alsatian dogs with police officers. And, uh, and I said to the policeman, I said, this is a little bit overkill. And he said, we're not taking any chances of any of your little mates coming to break you out. And I knew I was in a world of shit then. I knew I was in a world of shit. So they took, me to, they took, me, they took me to the magistrate's court. Um, they remanded me into custody. And then they transferred me to Belmarsh Prison with armed police and a helicopter. And then when I got moved there, they then told me I was going to be a double category A prisoner, um, which is like literally the highest level of security you can be on in prison in the UK. Um, and they said I was going to go on this HSU, which is a high security unit. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. Um, but when you're in Belmarsh, it's a prison within a prison. They built it in the 1990s to house the IRA. Um, it's the most escape-proof prison in Western Europe. Uh, it's, we used to call it the bunker because it's like you're underground. Um, and then when they, yeah, when they when they told me this, they put me in a special little van and they drive you through the the, the inside of the prison. And like I said, it's a prison within a prison. They got to drive you to it. And uh, when I went on there, I just realised I was in a I was in a lot a lot of trouble. Um, basically, the guys that tried to blow up the tube on twenty one seven. Uh, and the police just believed, like, they, they were a threat to national security, but the police believed in my case that I had the the money, means, capability and will to want to escape from lawful custody so they could justify keeping me at that level of security. And I was in that unit for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a, yeah, it was a crazy experience when I was in there. Um, very, yeah. very, yeah, very crazy experience. It's uh, it's all crazy. And, you know, I'm thinking back to the start of this conversation where you talked about being eight years old and hearing your mum talk about that your dad had died and you thinking, OK, learning about mortality and thinking, I want to do something with my life. You know, you mentioned reading those those magazines and going, I want to achieve something with my life. I want to I want to do something, I guess, of meaning and purpose, something that's worthwhile. And then I'm hearing you say, you know, explaining the situation where you've ended up and you're so, so young, you're, you're back in, in prison again. And I've heard you say before that going to prison was as close to dying as you could get because your life yeah. has literally been taken away. So, you know, you're then sentenced, am I right, in thinking you're then given two life sentences. So essentially yeah. you think you're going to be, I mean, I, obviously I don't really know what that means because you think life sentence means you're going to be in prison forever. And, we, and you know, listening to this, people know you're not in prison anymore. So two life sentences, what does that mean? How old were you? And what? how do you at that time even start to get your head around what the rest of your life is going to be like? So... Because, yeah, people people that aren't in the criminal justice system often get confused when they hear the word life. They just think life means life. So life is you get a life license for 99 years. So that means whenever you get released, you are on license for the rest of your life. So you're serving the license in the community. And that means if you ever break the law again, they can recall you back on your life sentence. So your sentence never technically ends. But of that life sentence, you have to do a certain amount of it in custody. So when I got sentenced, the judge said to me, if I was sentencing you today, I would have given you 10 years in prison. But because I'm going to give you life, and the reason he gave me life when he, when he did his summing up was he believed because of my level of offending at such a young age and my links to the criminal underworld, the likelihood of me being rehabilitated was very remote. And if I was and I got released from prison, the likelihood of me committing crime, and if I did commit crime to the higher end of the statutory book, which meant organised crime, it's obviously harder for the police to be able to detect that. So it kind of, when you get the life sentence, if they suspect you're involved in crime, they don't have to prove it, they can put you back in prison. 
easy. Right. Like they can recall you and say that I was seen with a criminal and they suspect I'm committing a criminal activity, committing criminal activity again. So that's what life sentence actually is. Now, when you're in prison on a life sentence, what it means then is they don't have to release you. So if I was in prison every day, fighting, selling drugs, stabbing people, they could keep me in there for the rest of my life until I can prove to the parole board I'm no longer a risk to the public. So he gave me a life sentence for conspiracy to commit robbery, and he gave me a life sentence for possession of firearms with intent to commit robbery. And in, like I said, that was part of his, his thinking and his summing up what he said about protecting the public. From my perspective, when he sentenced me to that sentence, and I was in Woolwich Crown Court, and there was armed police all around the court, it was category A, I was thinking straight away, there's no way that I'm going to sit in here for the rest of my life and, and sort of spend my whole life locked in this place. Like my, my thinking then was I'm just going to get out of here as fast as I could. So the way I processed that situation was I'm, just, I'm going to try to escape out of this situation as quick as I can. Like I have no intentions to sit in here for the rest of my life because my mindset, my mentality, shall I say, hadn't changed at all. Um, so he, he gave me these life sentences. I then went back to that high security unit in, in, um, in Belmarsh. And then I was kind of sitting there and I, I realized that like, not like the first time, because I had a fixed term, I had a release date. This time I didn't. So they could keep me in for the rest of my life. That, so if I didn't do stuff, if I didn't play along with the system, I wasn't going to get out. I wasn't even going to be given a, I, w- I wouldn't even be given the opportunity to try to escape because they completely locked me down in regards of the security level in which I was on in that prison. It was impossible to escape. But I knew the further down the line of the prison system I went, the easier it would become to see an opportunity to get out. So I started playing the game. Um, they transferred me out of that unit after two and a half years and moved me to a maximum security prison in Yorkshire called Full Sutton. Um, and then I was around a lot more prisoners. That took me some time to adjust to because for two and a half years, I was around like the same six people every day. And then suddenly I'm on a wing um, where there's like 60 people. And I started doing all the reoffending behavior courses, um, everything they wanted me to do. I, it was like a tick the box exercise. And then after two years of being in there, um, I'd done sort of four years of, of, of the five-year tariff that I got sentenced to hmm. on life sentence. And they then downgraded me to a category B prison and it was working. Like I was getting, I was working for the system. I was doing everything they wanted me to do and they, they couldn't justify keeping me at that level of security anymore with so all when of you the work. Say- so when you say you're ticking the boxes, you're doing these courses. So these are the things that the prison are asking you to do. But you said your yeah. mindset still hadn't shifted. So you still weren't thinking, actually, you know what? I've had enough of this. I want to change my life. Or you were just thinking, I'll just tick the box, do what they want so I can get out quicker and then return what to your old life. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, when you're in that situation, like again, when I was growing up as a young man, anyone that was rehabilitated and changed in, in the world that I grew up in, they were seen as being weak, that the system had broken them and the system had sort of broken them down to their core and forced them to change. So to me, change meant weakness. That's how I perceived it in my life, my younger life. So when I was in that environment, again, it was all about reputation. It was all about who you are as a person, your ego. Um, so when I was in that environment and, uh, and I was like working through it, I had no, no, not, not, no ounce of desire to even change. I didn't want to change. That was my life. Like that was what I knew. Um, my high identity was wrapped up in that. So when I was doing all these courses, all it was doing was like literally progressing me through the system because you realize how you manipulate the system to get out as quick as you humanly can. I didn't want to stay in there. Like, when I was in that place, I, again, I used to have that mantra, these people have kidnapped me. This is not my reality. Like when I was in there, I never wanted to be institutionalized. So I used to stay connected to the reality of the real world. Like when you're in prison, it's like a, a bubble. So I used to listen to the radio every day. I'd read newspapers. I wanna, I, 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 I like knowing about current affairs, what was happening in the reality of the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was why I, I felt like I never did get like um, institutionalized. But everything I was doing, yeah, I didn't for a moment ever wake up and think, do you know what? 
like I'm going to change. When I was in prison, I had access to mobile phones and I was talking to criminals outside of prison and I was still planning stuff, like planning to do stuff when I got out and um, where I was going to go. And my plan was I was going to, I was going to get out when the first opportunity I had to get out and I was going to go back out to Europe and I'd get a fake passport and, and I would carry on committing crime. There, there, there wasn't, there was not a moment where I thought, do you know what? Like I want something different for my life. Because that was my life. I didn't know anything else other than that 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 situation and of, of of criminality. Yeah, and that identity, as you said, having something to define yourself, to define your reality, and your identity is so important to all of us. You know, for a lot of people, what you what they do becomes who they are, and so identity is more than just you know, yeah, the the job title that you have, but the it's the people you hang around with, it's the, it's the clothes you wear, the the words you say, it's everything, it's all embedded. So at that point, you said you're going through the system, you're ticking the boxes, you're doing what they want you to do. And then at that point, they they move you to to another prison. And this is a uh, a different a different kind of prison again. Yeah, it's, it, it was a low security prison. So it was a category B prison. And I remember like when I first got transferred there, like it was markable the difference in security. Like I went from being in these maximum security, like the high security unit then to a maximum security prison in Yorkshire um, where... It, like the staff ratios to prisoners was really high security cameras everywhere. And then I'll get moved to this category B prison. And it was like, it was like being released to a degree um, because it, the security was so less. Um, and I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this. Like I'm nearly, I'm nearly getting to the back end of it. And like I said, I had access to a mobile phone in there. I was talking to people outside of prison. I was planning what I was going to do. And by this point, I made the decision because I'd served so much of the sentence, I was just going to wait until they transferred me to an open prison. And then I was just going to walk out. And then I was just going to get on a boat, go out to Europe and basically spend, well, it, what would have happened? I would have ended up getting caught eventually. But in that moment, I was like, I'd have been too clever. I'll get a fake passport. I'll go back out to Europe. I'll just commit loads of crime in Europe. And I vanished and sort of ran off into the sunset and no one ever seen me ever again. But the reality would have been I would have done that and probably got caught years later, just been unlucky somewhere one day. Um, but that was what my plan was. Mm -hmm. And on the 14th of November in 2009, my whole life completely changed when I found out that my best friend um, died in a car crash committing a robbery in the Netherlands. And my cousin told me over the phone, I was watching um, a game of football, the Republic of Ireland were playing France in a World Cup qualifier. And at halftime, France was still in the game and I couldn't believe it. And I phoned up my cousin to see if he was watching the match. And he said, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what? And he said, Aaron's dead. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, like, Aaron's dead, mate. And I was like, so you can't be. And I was in denial. And um, the next night on ITN, on the news at 10, um, they had it on the headline piece because they were four people from the UK that committed this robbery in the Netherlands. And as they were getting away from the crime, the tire on the car blew out and the car flipped and my mate died. He, he broke his neck and died instantly. And uh, two of the other guys died and the driver broke his back from the waist down. And I didn't remember sitting in this prison cell watching like the 10 o'clock news. And there was an image from the, from the bank and it froze on the CCTV camera of someone spraying like a, a CS gas into the um, into the camera lens, and as the camera froze, I could see through the balaclava. It was my friend, like I could tell by his eyes, and I just remember, like I had, I had honestly, like I had not, I couldn't even remember, I couldn't tell you the last time I cried, like when I up to that point, like probably when I was a little boy uh, with my mum when she told me off, hmm. um, and I remember that night, I I couldn't, I just cried, and I, I looked at myself and. And, and my mate, and I, I was in disbelief that he was dead. And I could obviously relate to that set of circumstances and what a, what a beautiful person he was. Like, he had a good heart. And, and I often say that good people do do bad things, mm. but they're not bad people. And he was like me. He, he, he got completely sucked into that shit, toxic world. And, and it cost him his life. And, and I was in this cell and I had this 16,000 pound Rolex Daytona on my wrist. And I was, and I just thought apathetic it was. Like when I was in prison, I had it. And, and really it was a big fuck you to the system. Like even though you've put me in there, like you can't take my, you can't take anything off me. And I had this watch in this cell and I was looking at it and I, and it was pathetic. 
And then I realized that this imaginary war that I was at with these people, like the, the system, the state, like the prison officers, like this realization that I was losing, like this is my life, my life on earth. And I'm just pissing it away down into a drain, sitting in this tiny little concrete coffin. Um, and, and, and that was the moment that night I, I was done. I, I had checked out. I was like, all of these men, my stepdad, the guy I got arrested with, these people I idolized as a kid um, and wanted to, wanted to emulate when I got older, they were old men that were either dead or in prison. Like that was the ending of the story mm. for them. Mm. And, I, and I didn't want that life anymore. And the next morning, we used to have communal eating area in the prison, in the, in the canteen. And I was there with a group of guys from up north and they were sitting next to me and they were talking about stabbing people and when they get out of prison, they're going to do this and that. And I just thought, I can't be around these people anymore. I need to get away from these people. And I often use this analogy. It's like being addicted to drugs and locked in a crack den trying to get off drugs. And I needed to get myself out of that environment, but I was trapped. Like I couldn't just get up and walk out. I was physically trapped in that place. Um, and I just... I was lost. Like I genuinely was lost. I didn't want that life anymore. I, I just did not know what it could be, what I could do. Because again, I was still driven. I was still ambitious. I still wanted my life to have some, like I wanted to do so in my life on earth. Um, and I was just so, 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 so fortunate that I went down that prison gym and I saw a guy from Tottenham, from North London, Mickey Steele. He was sitting on an indoor rowing machine and he was rowing a million meters for a charity. And when you're in prison, you only get a certain amount of gym sessions per week um, because of like you have issues in prison with gangs. So they only let like each block go to the gym at the same time because obviously you're on a housing block with people. They know you've not got gang problems with them. Um, but you're not allowed to go in with another housing block down at the gym at the same time. But Mickey was on all the gym sessions and I asked him what he was doing because he was down there all the time. And he, and he explained to me, he said, look, I'm running this million meters for charity. You can do it over however many months. And the gym officers let you come down they give you a special note and they let you off the wing and come down here and just row when you want. And he put this seed in my mind and I, I, I asked if I could do it and they agreed. They said, go and raise some money, some sponsorship money in, and we, we'll let you do it. You've got no issues in here, no gang problems. So you can come down with other house, housing blocks and come to the gym with them. And I, I went and raised some money, but some family sent me in some money for sponsorship. And um, I got in a ram machine when I was 26 years old. And the first session I did was 32,000 meters, 20, um, 20 mile. And everyone left me alone. And it was amazing. No one spoke to me. Prison officers left me alone. Prisoners left me alone. And then, like, I had this, I did, like, it's, this transcendence out of prison. It, like that rowing machine, it was, it, was the, it was the rhythmical nature of the row and looking at numbers on the monitor and my breathing becoming sync with, like, with, with the rhythm of the machine. And, and it just took me out of prison. And I went down and did it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And I rode a million meters in a month. And I thought, this is amazing. Like, this, is, this can help me get through my sentence. And, and I did another million and then another million. And I was on three months. And then, I, and then one day, an inmate said to me, you do realize that if you do five million meters, that's equivalent to rowing across the Atlantic. It's like 5,000 kilometers. And I didn't realise, and I asked the prison officers because I thought oh, it's quite a cool thing to say I've done it. Like I've rode across the Atlantic on an indoor rowing machine, and um, yeah, they agreed. They said, "Yep, you can keep doing it, John. Just keep raising money." And unbeknownst to me, because again, I, I was never interested in sport as a kid. Um, I didn't realise how good I was, but I had this ability in my body that I I woken up it, sitting on that rowing machine every day, and this incredible prison officer called Darren Davis one day walked behind me and looked over my shoulder. And he saw how quick I was. And I was really, really, really quick. And I, and I genuinely didn't realise, I did not realise how fast I was. Because I'm in this bubble. I'm not in the real world. Like, I'm not an athlete. I wasn't racing against people. And he come back and gave me all these pieces of paper. And they had all the world and British records on an indoor rowing machine. And I looked at them. And I, and I could nearly break some of them at that point. And I was like, they can't be real. And Darren said, they're real records. And then I was like, they can't. And I went back to my cell. And I thought about it and I was like, I wonder if they let me try to break some of them. And I went back to Darren and Darren went to the governor, deeply Christian man, really, really, really religious man, lovely, genuinely believed in rehabilitation. And Darren went to him and asked him if, if I could attempt these records. And Gareth agreed. Gareth said he can do it. And then Darren had to 
kind of find out how the rules and regulations were about validating the record. So because I was doing it as a lightweight man, I had to be under the weight class of 75 kilos. I had to be weighed. They had to take a picture of the scales. They had to have two independent verifying witnesses to witness that I did it um, and put a special machine card into the rowing machine to prove from the data that I'd done it in one continuous row and I kind of like broke it up into splits and stuff. And the first record I broke, I attempted, well, I, I wanted to break, was the record for the British Marathon. Um, and I broke it by seven minutes. And I remember when I broke that record, I was on that mat at the end. And honestly, and this is why I, I say this to young people so much. When I was little, what I did, I attached success. The only way you acquire success in life was through wealth. It was never about money it, with me. It was never about that. I was so desperate to be successful at something. When I was then exposed to people that I thought were successful, that had money, that then I thought that was success. And then they showed me a path to walk down. But when I broke that record, when I was 26 years old in that prison gym, everything I'd wanted as a kid to just have achieved something in my life and my life to have meaning and be successful, I felt like it in that moment in that prison gym when I broke that record. And then I realized I could use my body as a vehicle to get me out of that world. And I could use my body as a vehicle to, to help me achieve what I wanted to achieve within my life. So you redefined what success and what achievement actually meant. Cause you know, achieving something, everyone can have a goal, but yeah, I guess that was the first time, right? That you felt you'd redefined what success actually meant to you. Most definitely. It was, it was, as I said, I realized at that moment, it was never about money. Um, and it, and it was, and I'd completely redefined it. And, then and when you I, say seven minutes, seven minutes to anyone who does endurance sports, endurance, you know, athletes, breaking a record by seven seconds, you know, the margins are, you know, the 1% or, or a minute, but to take seven minutes off of a, of a record, you must have been, you know, I guess there's probably a genetic element that maybe you didn't realize that you, you had that ability, but also the, I don't know, just again, that the word mindset just comes up for me when I, you know, hear your story again and again, this relentless mindset to i suppose once you channeled it towards towards sport towards rowing but whatever you were going to put your mind to i suppose for better or for worse you had this relentless pursuit most definitely and again i often say this to a lot of young people to to people that are in prisons sometimes like when you hear the word change people think you need to completely change your whole character and you don't like what I did was redirect my mindset into something positive. So when my mindset, the way I am, my character, um, the drive to be successful, the only people I ever saw like that were criminals. I didn't see that there was this other group of people with the same characteristics and mindset, but did something positive with it. Um, it was only when I started like, engaging in sport in prison, I started reading autobiographies of athletes. And I was like, I'm exactly like these people. Like, and I never knew these people existed. And what I did, I realized that if, if, if I channeled that in like my mindset, my, my will, the ambition, the drive, the want to be successful into this, into sport, something that was really the attributes that I had that were massive attributes in sport were very detrimental to me when I was applying them into crime. And it was refocusing that energy into something positive, which I had the characteristics to be successful. Um, and when I put them into sport, I was successful. And... I went down to prison library. I started reading books on sports nutrition, on training, on heart rate zones. Um, and, and, and I wanted to build myself and recreate myself as a sports person. And that's what I went on to do. And I, was, I used to sit there and I used to train on that RAM machine and visualize every single day when I got out of prison, I will be successful. I will be successful. I will be an athlete. I will be an athlete. And I would kind of go into like flow state. Like some of these records that I do, I remember like I felt like I was on drugs. Like I'd be floating on this rowing machine and I would just be visualizing like when I get out of this place, I'm going to be an athlete. Um, and within 16 months, I ended up setting three world records and I set eight British records. And then that gave me the confidence. And what Darren used to do, the prison officer, he used to bring in the bios of every athlete that I beat that held the record before me. And he said, that is the person you've just beaten. And these people were incredible sportsmen. Like the stuff they had achieved 
was incredible. And Darren was trying to show me, he was like, this is how good you are. They're not just numbers on a piece of paper, but this is the person that held it before you. This is what they've accomplished in other aspects of their life. Like you have the capability when you get out of prison to do what they've done and more. And I went for parole. The first parole hearing I went on, I remember the judge, um, he was from Manchester. He was was a retired judge at this point because I had to go in front of a Crown Court judge to get released from prison um, because I got took the life sentences. And I remember sitting across the table from him and he said, what are you going to do when you come out of prison? I said, I'm going to be a professional athlete. (laughs) And he looked at me and he went, I have never heard a life sentence prisoner sit in front of me say that they're going to be a professional athlete when they get released from prison. And And he went, I don't think your release plan is based in reality. And they didn't release me. They, they, they said they, they wanted me then to go. I had to go to an open prison and, and I, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. And he was like, look, you're obviously a very talented young man. And he said, you obviously have an ability and you've accomplished more than most prisoners will ever accomplish their term, their time in prison. He went, but you need a plan B. And he went, it will make me feel more comfortable if I know you've got a plan B. He went, so I want you to become a personal trainer. And what they did they moved me to an open prison. I did my level three personal training qualification and they used to let me go out and work every day um, at the local gym in Fitness First. And I remember the hardest thing I ever done. This is not a joke, right? So bear in mind, I've been in prison at this point for seven and a half years. I have not been in a room with more than like one woman, like women in, in, in all that time. And then they put me in Fitness First and the instructor didn't turn up. And they said to me, you have to go and take a legs, bums and tums class. <laughs> and literally, I went into this this studio, and I, I went bright red. I didn't know what to do, but I like it was just it was I was just put in this like mad situation. Where I was just like because none of no one in that gym knew I was on a day release to, to work in the prison. Like I was coming out of prison working because I was told I wasn't allowed to tell people because like the customer might get scared. Hmm. And then the, the the studio guy come in and said, "Look, like the the the, the guys cancelled the class." They need you to cover it. And I walked into the studio and I was just like, did not know what to say to anyone. I went bright red. Oh, I was so bad. I was so, so bad. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I just, I mean, the it sounds funny, but it's also, like I said, this story, your life, it, you couldn't, you couldn't write this. You know, you couldn't sit down with a pen and paper and create this. It just is, it's wild. So you're out. So you're doing the personal train, personal training, but during the day, but of course you have to go back to prison. And I'm kind of thinking as well, I don't know, so six, seven years, you said you've been there. I don't know how, how old you are at this point, but surely if you've realized, if you're sitting there breaking these records, you're on a row machine, but you're in prison, you have to go back there every night. Surely there's a frustration when you're thinking, hang on a minute, I could be, you know, trying out for a team GB, or I could be, I don't know, you know, on the world stages competing with the best of the best of the best, but you're still having to go back to prison. So how did you, yeah, compute that in terms of thinking I've got this amazing talent, but it's it's stuck in here? Yeah, like, I, I, I'll be honest with you, that was that was one of the most frustrating parts of the whole sentence. It was the, when I realised I was very good at something and then I wasn't able to use it properly and really get out and, and sort of use my talent, um, it was very frustrating. That the last, the last sort of year and a half, I, I just wanted, because I, I knew I changed. I knew I knew in my heart, I knew in my soul, I was a different person in the regards of what I wanted to do in my life. I knew I knew I wouldn't commit crime ever again. But by me just saying those words doesn't mean that's the case to the powers that be within the criminal justice system. Um, and it was a very frustrating experience the, the last 15 months because I just wanted to move on in my life. And, and that's, that is... That is one of the drawbacks of when you get a life sentence, you don't really ever move on. Like, even though we're doing this podcast right now, I'm still a life sentence prisoner. Like, that that will never go. My case, what was sort of extreme um, and very unique 
was because of when I did get released from prison, all the work that I started to do, the Secretary of State for Justice, he removed all my life sentence conditions, um, which when that happened, like my probation officer phoned me up to tell me and she was just in disbelief. And she said, like, genuinely, I don't know what that means. She said, like, there have been probation officers in her office for 20 years and it's never happened before. She said, I don't know what you can and cannot do anymore. She said, because it's just so rare. And and it was. And they the, the Secretary of State removed all those life sentence conditions off me. And, and that allowed me to be able to travel. I was able to leave the United Kingdom because before mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do that. I could live where I wanted if I lived in the United Kingdom. Before I wasn't able to do that. If I had changed job, I had to constantly get that um, approved. I had to report to my probation officer when I got released from prison after um, it was weekly, then other, every other week, then monthly, then every quarter. And that looked like I was probably going to have to do that for the rest of my life. And that got removed. Um, but yeah, I, I just, when when I did get released, um, I was just determined to, to be successful. And, and, and when, when I was in that really frustrating period, like I thought this is just part of the journey. This is all part of the journey. Like, mm. I will, I will achieve. I will be successful. I will achieve. I will be successful. I didn't allow that negative emotion to eat me up um, and become bitter and resentful. I thought it will be what it will be. I will keep doing the right things. And, and, and I read the laws of attraction. I read the secret when I was in prison and I thought I'm going to be positive. I'm going to attract a positive people into my life, the abundance mentality. I'm going to be a good person. I'm not going to do bad things. I'm just going to keep, keep, keep being relentless in what I'm doing. And eventually I will get what I want to get out of this situation. Mm, Wow. That's incredibly powerful. And knowing, especially now knowing, yes, the work that you do, you know, the, the, the Ironman triathlon, Ironman that you compete in the book that you've written, you know, being a Nike sponsored athlete, you know, you said it at the start, you know, when you thought, right, I want to be a professional athlete. And you said that to the, was it the, the probation officer or mm-hmm. you yep. said I want to be a professional athlete and he said he'd never heard that before and then here you are today a Nike sponsored professional athlete and again your story you know that it couldn't you couldn't make this up so you get released you start of course you know competing and training and you mentioned these these limits that you thought would be on your life for the rest of your life what a blessing I suppose that that they were taken away so looking back now you know there's so much in in the story and in your life and your journey but I guess the question I'd love to ask you now reflecting is about perspective you know what are the things I suppose that you maybe enjoy today this week this month this year that other people maybe would take for granted you know I guess as a free man without those restrictions on your life you know when you said being in a concrete I think you called it a coffin, you know, feeling like your life has gone. And now you have this life again. You have a whole life ahead of you again. You're still young. You know, how do you think it's changed your perspective? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it changes it a lot. Um, because when you have, like, I've had nothing, like nothing. I've been, I've been in a cell basically naked, um, everything taken away from me. And deservedly so. So, like, I put myself in that situation um, I accept full responsibility for every decision I've ever made. No one ever made me do anything I didn't want to do. Um, but I've been in those situations where everything's been taken away from me. Um, I didn't see grass for eight years. I didn't see trees for eight years. Um, I wasn't able to do what I wanted when I wanted for eight years. I couldn't, what, what food I was putting in my body, I had no control of. Every, every, every part of my life was, was accounted for by other people um, to a degree of my existence. Um, I took control of my own body in that in that tiny little environment as much as I could, but obviously I didn't have control of the whole environment. Um, so it gives me a great sense of appreciation of the fact of what I've got today, um, the freedoms that I've got. I I really appreciate my freedom. I believe in living in the moment um, because you, tomorrow's not given to any of us. Um, you don't know you don't know what's around the corner. <laughs> Um, and you have to make the most of your life whilst you've got it because tomorrow you can get up and not feel that great and go and see a doctor and he can say you've got cancer and you've got three months to live and you you, you have to make the most of your existence on earth because we're here for such a short period of time. Like I've seen so many people throughout my life dying young, um, never reached their potential. And I remember when I was in prison, I went through that process of like wanting something different for my life. 
I always remember there was a guy in there. He was from the Middle East and he was in prison for drug trafficking. And we were chatting one day and, uh, and I said to him, if we went to a, like a, a hospice in Saudi Arabia, where everyone in that hospice was billion, they, they were worth billions of pounds. And you said to them, I will give you 10 years of life for the amount of the years I've spent in this place. For every penny you've got, majority of them would give you every penny they've got to have that 10 years of life on earth. And that is how important time is and life. Um, and sometimes people get completely like, redirected and lost onto what's important in life. And, and look, we need money to exist. And you need money to survive. But how much is enough? <laughs> like if you're working sort of 350 days of the year and, and you're, 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 you're spending 10 days of that on holiday doing the things that you love doing and then the rest of the time you're giving it to other people and, and they're not really appreciating your treating you with respect. Why are you doing it? Um, because life is too precious. Like do things that make you happy and content. Um, and yesterday I was having this conversation with someone about happiness and what does happiness mean to me? And I, I'd said happiness to me is being content. It's not having too much. It's not having too little. It's live, keeping things as simple as possible, having good people around me and, and living a content life. And if I feel like that now, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Cause you can't wake up every morning and be super happy, smiley. Like I get up Sundays and I feel tired and things don't always go your way, but even when things aren't going your way, just remember it's not forever. <laughs> it's not forever. I used to sit in prison when I was in there. This isn't forever. I will get out of this place eventually. Like this mm -hmm. isn't my life ever. I will get out of it. Um, and 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 I would say today, just love your life. Appreciate the fact that we're blessed to be on this planet. We're conscious. We we've got awareness of our environment, and just be appreciative of the fact that we we're very lucky and fortunate to be on such a beautiful planet, and make the most of your time whilst you've got it. Yeah. And time, you know, time, obviously, you know, the show's called Power Hour. And for me, I talk a lot about the importance of time. I say it's the most valuable thing that we have and the most valuable thing you can give to another person. And ultimately, you know, when I think back to when I first started, you know, my own Power Hour, which is the first hour of my day, this is years ago, this is six years ago, I first started thinking, okay, you know, regardless of everything else I've got to do today, whether it's work, whether it's, you know, taking my son to school, like whatever the things were, I thought I'm going to take one hour at the start of every day. And I'm going to use that time intentionally to do something for me. And at the time it was running and it was, you know, so I'm going to run every morning. And, you know, some days if I didn't feel like you say I didn't run every day. So some days it would be okay. I'm just going to spend the hour reading or I'm going to spend the hour writing or whatever. But essentially that one hour a day, that time in intentionally spent really was a catalyst in my life for a lot of change. And, you know, later on from that, I suppose I started this podcast or a whole book about, you know, the power hour and time and, people will take what they want from it. So some people might say, oh, you know, power hour, it's just about getting up early or it's just about being productive. And I always say, no, it's not about being productive or getting up earlier or doing more, more, more. It's about taking one hour. It's about being intentional. It's about reclaiming actually some of your time because people tell me that they're time poor and yeah, Adrienne, I've got goals, ambitions like you, but I'm too busy, you know, I don't have time. And so that idea that you said then around time being really truly the most important thing that we have is so so powerful and even though i've done you know hundreds of episodes and i sometimes feel like i say this so often that people go oh yeah okay you know power hour use your time well but i think it's yeah hopefully you know people hearing your story and, and hearing you talk today will maybe start to think yeah differently a little bit because eight it was eight years you spent in prison ten ten years ten years and and you know that time, unfortunately, you know, you'll never get it back. You know, you'll never get it back. And for some people, it might not be 10 years in prison. It might be 10 years or, you know, in, in the wrong marriage, or it might be 10 years doing a job that they hate, or it might be 10 years of something that they feel like is wasted time that they'll never get back. But tomorrow is, you know, a new day, next year, next month, we've got a whole life. And as you said, you know, tomorrow's not promised. So I think I really hope that people will hear that and think actually, wherever they're at, you know, whatever their situation is today. Cause some people I know might hear your story as well and think, well, I haven't got, you know, a special ability or talent in, in athletic sport, or I haven't got someone, to, you know, in my corner helping me out. And sometimes people feel stuck, you know, they don't know that they can change or they don't see a route out. But I really hope that you'll, people listening will feel inspired and, and will think about the, the small things as well as the big things in their life what are they working towards who are they spending their time with and even if it is just one hour each day that they can spend doing something that they love but they'll start to really really appreciate that 
And so I suppose because, you know, unfortunately I do have to end the episode. I don't want to, but I suppose the last place would be to ask you, John, about your power hour. So if you if you call it that or if you have a morning routine or, you know, now today your life is very, very different. When you wake up in the morning, what do you typically do in the first hour of your day? So normally when I wake up, I I know I'm I'm quite a big eater. <laughs> we haven't really got into that today with how much food that I consume, the amount of calories. But normally I get up and I, I have breakfast and I will then go for a walk. And I sort of go for a walk, I get a coffee um, and I just walk for an hour and I clear my mind and I think about my day ahead, whatever it is I've got coming up. And um, I sort of just, yeah, just try to just be in the present, be in the moment. I walk around outside to try to get out in the park or wherever I am. I'm, at the moment, I'm in the mountains, so I'm very lucky. I've got a lot of nature, but I really try to get out in nature um, and just sort of clear my mind and just think about what I'm doing that day and trying to set myself off in a, in a positive mindset. What I don't do is wake up and put the news on straight away mm. and look at all the doom and gloom that's going on in the world. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of it right now. And so, and you said, as you said, we haven't really even touched on, I mean, we could do a whole nother episode probably talking about your training, how you then dedicated yourself to, to Ironman and, and, and how's that going now? Are you training for a race at the moment? Yes, I've got, um, I've got a couple of bike races coming up. Um, one in July, oh, actually one in the end of June and one in, at the end of July. And then once I've done those two bike races, I am then going to focus on being a marathon runner from August until October. And I'm going to see if I can run as fast as I broke the British record on an indoor round machine at the London Marathon. So fingers crossed, I'm able wow. to do that. So, so be, what's the I, time? What's the time you're going for? So the time I set on the Brit, on the indoor railroad was 2.37. So I'd have to, so obviously I'd, I'd have to run faster than 2.37. Wow. Well, I mean, I, to be honest, John, no pressure, but I don't doubt if anyone can yeah. do it, the things that you've done, I don't doubt that you, that you will put your mind, if you put your mind to it, you'll do it. So you're running. So that's the London marathon. It's happening this year and you're going for a, a, a sub two, three, seven. Two, three, seven. That's correct. Wow. Thanks, that's thanks exciting. For no, I mean, I've definitely will support. I hope I can be there actually to, to cheer you on. It would be incredible. And so I also know that you do a lot of work and you have a foundation. I'd love to share that with the listeners. Where can they find out about the foundation and what does the foundation do? Who does it support? So I have got a charity called the John McAvoy Charitable Trust um, with an incredible group of trustees that are ex-Olympic athletes and some real strong business leaders that have agreed to be trustees. And we work with um, groups across the UK. So we support grassroots charities, basically. So they, they make funding applications and we look at the work that they do. And then we give them grants to deliver their programs because they know the communities better than what we know them. But we provide the financial assistance for them to continue doing the incredible work that they do. Um, and also, I'm an ambassador for Football Beyond Borders that are in London, that are, are an incredible charity and another charity in Crystal Palace called Gloves Not Guns, um, which again are just an amazing charity. Great. And do you think that, you know, obviously you're working with these charities, you work with a lot of young people. I know you go and deliver talks to schools and in prisons. Do you think that, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, I suppose systemically that's built into the justice system, built into the prison system. And again, we could do a whole hour just talking about that, but you're, I suppose, meeting these people, you're talking to these young minds, these young people and giving them hope, giving them, you know, hopefully the inspiration to start to, to, to turn their lives around. And do you think that, you know, the work that you're doing, the, that sport and, and, and fitness, do you, do you see the power that that has for, for, for young people? And do you think it can start to turn around? Absolutely, most definitely. Um, I think because because of my story and the way it's been received by the public over the last few years, um, it's really allowed me the opportunity to utilise, because I'm a great believer in life. If you're successful, you have a moral obligation to reach out and lift other people up. And, and that is what I do with the work I do today, because I feel... I was very fortunate that I come across some incredible people that supported me whilst I was in prison. And when I got out of prison, they helped create the awareness in, my, in me as to the talent that I had. And without their help, I wouldn't be talking to you today. So I believe I have that moral obligation to reach out and help other people and use my platform as much as I can to, to help use the power of sport and education to help turn people's lives around. And, and within the prison system in particular, 
um, because of my story. And obviously, it, 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 it's a it is a it's a good PR for them. Um, they've allowed a lot of sports organisations to go into this prison like system to mm. deliver courses and projects. And now we've got park run in prisons on a Saturday morning. Obviously, right. they're not allowed to come out of the prison and run in the local park run, but the park run goes into the prison and they run within the prison ground. You've got Boats Not Bars, which is the first indoor rowing um, um, project in the world. It goes into prisons and we're going to um, have a, a national prison rowing league where prisons from across the country will, will row against each other. Um, I'm going to set up an e-cycling team. We're on Zwift, where young people in prison will get to race and train with people outside of prison mm. um, and just try to get as many sports organisations as we can in prisons to deliver sort of sports qualifications and education because a lot of young people and a lot of people in prison do love to be physically active. Um, mm. and, and the gym is normally the most popular thing for people to do whilst they're in prison. So if we can, like, thread in education within that and help them gain qualifications which would then mean when they get released from prison, they're more likely to get a job that they're passionate about. Um, I think it's a win-win situation. And really just using my story as an example of what can happen when you do give someone an opportunity. Um, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to mean them going, coming out to be a professional athlete. Sometimes it's just giving people an opportunity to have a job and that can change their lives profoundly. Um, and giving them access to positive role models and mentors, again, change their life profoundly. So I just want to try to use my story in my life as an example of what can happen when you give someone that second chance um, and people can turn their lives around and live happy, law-abiding lives. Yeah, well, as I say, I've followed your story for a long time, actually, and I know the work that you do and the impact that you have, and it is it is incredible. It's truly incredible. So, John, thank you so much for joining us, for being a guest on the show today. I knew it was going to be great, but it's been even better than I could have um, than I could have anticipated. So, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's lovely talking to you. Wow. What an incredible story. And again, yet another example that change is always possible and that where you start does not have to determine where you finish. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation with John as much as I did. He is such an incredible storyteller, but also just so honest and so real so I really really hope you enjoyed it please do share it with others and also don't forget the Power Hour Live event is happening 23rd of June in London I hope to see as many of you there as possible you can get a ticket from the link in the show ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Notes or head over to Instagram at Adrienne underscore LDN. Have an awesome week, stay safe, and I'll be back next week with another episode.